Chapter 48 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Translated by Jeremiah Kurtal. 1835 to 1906. Chapter 48. Next morning, the prince received a summons from the elector to go with all speed to Königsberg to take command of the newly levied troops, which were to march to Marienburg or Danzig. The letter contained also news of the daring campaign of Karl Gustav through the whole length of the Commonwealth to Russian regions. The elector foresaw a disastrous end to the campaign, but just for that reason he desired to be at the head of as many troops as possible, that he might in case of need be indispensable to one side or the other, sell himself dearly, and decide the fate of the war. For those reasons he enjoined on the young prince all possible haste, so greatly was he concerned about avoiding delay. But after the first courier, he sent a second, who arrived twelve hours later. The prince, therefore, had not a moment to lose, and not time enough to rest, for the fever returned with its previous violence. Still he had to go. So when he had delegated his authority to Sarkovich, he said, Perhaps we shall have to transport Bilevich and the maiden to Königsberg. There it will be easier in quiet to handle a hostile man firmly, but the girl I will take to the camp, for I have had enough of these ceremonies. It is well, and the cavalry may be increased, answered Sakovich at parting. An hour later the prince was no longer in Taurogi. Sakovich remained, an unlimited despot, recognising no power above himself but that of Anusha and he began to blow away the dust from before her feet, as on a time the prince had before the feet of Olenka. Restraining his wild nature, he was courteous, anticipating her wishes, divining her thoughts, and at the same time he held himself at a distance, with all the respect which a polished cavalier should have toward a lady for whose hand and heart he is striving. It must be confessed that this reigning in Taurogi pleased Anusha. It was grateful to her to think that when evening came, in the lower halls, in the corridors, in the barracks, in the garden still covered with winter frost, the sighs of old and young officers were heard, that the astrologer was sighing while looking at the stars from his tower, that even old Bilevich interrupted his evening rosary with sighs. While the best of maidens, she was still glad that those swift affections went not to Alenka, but to her. She was glad also with respect to Babinich, for she felt her power, and it came to her head that if no man had resisted her anywhere, she must have burned on his heart also permanent marks with her eyes. He will forget that woman, it cannot be otherwise, for she feeds him with ingratitude, and when he forgets her, he knows where to seek me, and he will seek me, the robber. 
Then she threatened him in her soul. Wait, I will pay you before I console you. Meanwhile, though not in real truth caring much for Sakovich, she saw him with pleasure. It is true that he justified himself in her eyes from reproaches of treason in the same way in which Boguslav had explained himself to the sword-bearer. He said, therefore, that peace was already concluded with the Swedes, that the Commonwealth might recover and flourish, had not Pan Sapleha ruined everything for his own private ends. Anusha, not knowing over much of these matters, let the words pass her ears, but she was struck by something else in Sakovich's narrative. The Bileviches, said he, scream in heaven-piercing voices of injustice and captivity. But nothing has happened to them here, and nothing will happen. The prince has not let them go from Taurogi, it is true, but that is for their good, for three furlongs beyond the gate they would perish from ravagers or forest bandits. He has not let them go also, because he loves Panana Bilevich, and that also is true. But who will not justify him? Who would act otherwise? Who had a feeling heart and a breast burdened with sighs? If he had had less honourable intentions, being such a powerful man, he might have given rein to himself. But he wanted to marry her. He wanted to elevate that stubborn lady to his princely estate, to cover her with happiness, place the coronet of the Rajivils on her head, and these thankless people are hurling invectives at him, thus trying to diminish his honour and fame. Anusha, not believing this greatly, asked Olenka that same day if the prince wished to marry her. Olenka could not deny, and because they had become intimate, she explained her reasons for refusal. They seemed just and sufficient to Anusha, but still she thought to herself that it was not so grievous for the Bileviches in Taurogi, and that the prince and Sarkovich were not such criminals as Pan Tomasz had proclaimed. Then, also, came news that Sapieha and Babinich were not only not approaching Taurogi, but had gone with forced marches against the King of Sweden, far away toward Lvov. Anusha fell into a rage at first, and then began to understand that if the Hetman and Babinich had gone, there was no reason to flee from Taurogi, for they might lose their lives, or, in the most favourable event, change a quiet existence into a captivity full of dangers. For this reason it came to disputes between her on one side and Olenka and Bilevich on the other, but even they were forced to admit that the departure of Sapieha rendered their flight very difficult, if not quite impossible, especially since the country was growing more and more excited and no inhabitant could be certain of the morrow. Finally, even should they not accept Anusha's reason, Flight without her aid was impossible, in view of the watchfulness of Sakovich and the other officers. Ketling alone was devoted to them, but he would not let himself be involved in any plot against his service. Besides, he was absent often, for Sakovich was glad to employ him against armed bands of confederates and ravagers, since he was an experienced soldier and a good officer 
therefore he sent him frequently from Taurogi. But it was pleasanter and pleasanter for Anusha. Sakovich made a declaration to her a month after the departure of the prince, but the deceiver. She answered cunningly that she did not know him, that men spoke variously concerning him, that she had not time yet to love, that without permission of Princess Griselda she could not marry, and finally that she wished to subject him to a year's trial. The starosta gnawed his anger, gave orders that day to give three thousand stripes to a cavalry soldier for a trifling offence. After this, the poor soldier was buried. But the starosta had to agree to Anusha's conditions. She told the lordling that if he would serve still more faithfully, diligently and obediently, in a year he would receive whatever love she had. In this way she played with the bear, and she so succeeded in mastering him that he stifled even his growling. He merely said, With the exception of treason to the prince, ask anything of me, even ask me to walk on my knees. If Anusha had seen what terrible results of Sakovich's impatience were falling on the whole neighbourhood, she would not have teased him so greatly. Soldiers and residents in Taurogi trembled before him, for he punished grievously and altogether without cause, punished beyond every measure. Prisoners died in chains from hunger or were burned with hot iron. More than once it seemed that the wild star roster wished to cool in the blood of men his spirit, at once raging and burning with love, for he started up suddenly and went on an expedition. Victory followed him nearly everywhere. He cut to pieces parties of rebels, and ordered, as an example, that the right hands be cut from captured peasants, who were then sent home free. The terror of his name girded Taurogi as with a wall. Even the most considerable bodies of patriots did not dare to go beyond Rochenye. Peace was established in all parts, and he formed new regiments of German vagrants and the local peasants, with the money extorted from neighbouring citizens and nobles, and increased in power so as to furnish men to the prince in case of urgent necessity. A more loyal and terrible servant Boguslav could not have found. But Sakovich gazed more and more tenderly at Anusha with his terrible, pale blue eyes, and played to her on a lute. Life, therefore, in Taurogi passed for Anusha joyously and with amusement. For Olenka it was sore and monotonous. From one there went gleams of gladness, like that light which issues at night from the firefly. The face of the other grew paler and paler, more serious, sterner. Her dark brows were contracted more resolutely on her white forehead, so that finally they called her a nun. And she had something in her of the nun. She began to accept the thought that she would become one, that God himself would, through suffering and disappointment, lead her to peace behind the grating. She was no longer that maiden with beautiful bloom on her face and happiness in her eyes, not that Olenka who, on a time while riding in a sleigh with her betrothed Andrei Kmichits, cried, 
Hey, hey, to the pine woods and forests. Spring appeared in the world. A wind strong and warm shook the waters of the Baltic, now liberated from ice. Later on, trees bloomed. Flowers shot out from their harsh leafy enclosures. Then the sun grew hot, and the poor girl was waiting in vain for the end of Taurogi captivity. For Anusha did not wish to flee, and in the country it was ever more terrible. Fire and sword were raging as though the pity of God were never to be manifest. Nay more, whoso had not seized the sabre or the lance in winter, seized it in spring. Snow did not betray his tracks, the pine wood gave better concealment, and warmth made war the easier. News flew swallow-like to Taurogi, sometimes terrible, sometimes comforting, and to these and to those the maiden devoted her prayers, and shed tears of sorrow or joy. Previous mention had been made of a terrible uprising of the whole people, as many as the trees in the forests of the Commonwealth, as many as the ears of grain waving on its fields, as many as the stars shining on it at night between the Carpathians and the Baltic, were the warriors who rose up against the Swedes. These men, being nobles, were born to the sword and to war by God's will and nature's order. Those who cut furrows with the plough, sowed land with grain, those who were occupied with trade and handicraft in towns, those who lived in the wilderness, from beekeeping, from pitch-making, who lived with the axe or by hunting, those who lived on the rivers and laboured at fishing, those who were nomads in the steppes with their cattle, all seized their weapons to drive out the invader. The Swede was now drowning in that multitude as in a swollen river. To the wonder of the whole world, the Commonwealth, powerless but a short time before, found more sabres in its defence than the Emperor of Germany or the King of France could have. Then came news of Carl Gustav, how he was marching ever deeper into the Commonwealth, his feet in blood, his head in smoke and flames, his lips blaspheming. It was hoped any moment to hear of his death and the destruction of all the Swedish armies. The name of Charnyetsky was heard with increasing force from boundary to boundary, transfixing the enemy with terror, pouring consolation into the hearts of the Poles. He routed them at Kozienitsi, was said one day. He routed them at Yaroslav, was repeated a few weeks later. A distant echo repeated, He has beaten them at Sandomierge. The only wonder was where so many Swedes could still come from after so many defeats. Finally, a new flock of swallows flew in, and with them the report of the imprisonment of the king and the whole Swedish army in the fork of the rivers. It seemed that the end was right there. Sakovich stopped his expeditions. He merely wrote letters at night and sent them in various directions. Bilevich seemed bewildered. He rushed in every evening with news to Elenka. Sometimes he gnawed his hands when he remembered that he had to sit in Taurogi. The old soldier soul was yearning for the field. At last he began to shut himself up in his room and to ponder over something for hours at a time.
Once he seized Olenka in his arms, burst out into great weeping and said, You are a dear girl, my only daughter, but the country is dearer. And next day he vanished as if he had fallen through the earth. Olenka found merely a letter and in it the following words. God bless thee, beloved child. I understood well that they are guarding thee and not me, and that it would be easier for me to escape alone. Let God judge me, thou poor orphan, if I did this from hardness of heart and lack of fatherly love for thee. But the torment surpassed my endurance. I swear by Christ's wounds that I could endure no longer. For when I thought that the best Polish blood was flowing in a river pro patria el libertate, for the country and liberty, and in that river there was not one drop of my blood, it seemed to me that the angels of heaven were condemning me. If I had not been born in our sacred Zhmuj, where love of country and bravery are cherished, if I had not been born a noble, a Bilevich, I should have remained with thee and guarded thee. But thou, if a man, wouldst have done as I have. Therefore thou'lt forgive me for leaving thee alone, like Daniel in the lion's den, whom God in his mercy preserved. So I think that the protection of our most holy lady the Queen will be better over thee than mine. Olenka covered the letter with tears, but she loved her uncle still more because of this act, for her heart rose with pride. Meanwhile, no small uproar was made in Taurogi. Sarkovich himself rushed to the maiden in great fury, and without removing his cap asked, Where is your uncle? Where all except traitors are? In the field. Did you know of this? cried he. But she, instead of being abashed, advanced some steps, and measuring him with her eyes, said with inexpressible contempt, I knew, and what? Ah, if it were not for the prince, you will answer to the prince. Neither to the prince, nor to his serving lad, and now I beg you, and she pointed to the door. Sakovich gnashed his teeth and went out. That same day, News of the victory at Varka was ringing through Taurogi, and such fear fell on all partisans of the Swedes that Sakovich himself dared not punish the priests who sang publicly in the neighbouring churches Te Deum. A great burden fell from his heart when a few weeks later a letter came from Boguslav, who was before Marienburg, with information that the king had escaped from the river sack but the other news was very disagreeable. The prince asked reinforcements, and directed to leave in Taurogi no more troops than were absolutely needed for defence. All the cavalry ready marched the next day, and with it Kettling, Ertingen, Fitzgregory, in a word, all the best officers, except Braun, who was indispensable to Sarkovich. Taurogi was still more deserted than after the prince's departure. Anusha grew weary and annoyed Sakovich all the more. The starosta thought of removing to Prussia, for parties, made bold by the departure of the troops, 
began again to push beyond Rosheny. The Bileviches themselves had collected about 500 horse, small nobles and peasants. They had inflicted a sensible defeat on Butsov, who had marched against them, and they ravaged without mercy all villages belonging to Rajivil. Men rallied to them willingly, for no family, not even the Hlebovichs, enjoyed such general honour and respect. Sakovich was sorry to leave Taurogi at the mercy of the enemy. He knew that in Prussia it would be difficult for him to get money and reinforcements, that he managed here as he liked, there his power must decrease. Still he lost hope more and more of being able to maintain himself. Butsov, defeated, took refuge under him, and the tidings which he brought of the power and growth of the rebellion made Sakovich decide at last on the Prussian journey. As a positive man, and one loving to bring into speedy effect that which he had planned, he finished his preparations in ten days, issued orders, and was ready to march. Suddenly he met with an unlooked-for resistance, and from a side from which he had least expected it, from Anusha Borjabahata. Anusha did not think of going to Prussia. She was comfortable in Taurogi. The advances of Confederate parties did not alarm her in the least, and if the Bileviches had attacked Taurogi itself, she would have been glad. She understood also that in a strange place, among Germans, she would be at Sakovich's mercy completely, and that she might the more easily be brought there to obligation, for which she had no desire. Therefore she resolved to insist on remaining. Olenka, to whom she explained her reasons, not only confirmed the justness of them, but implored with all her power, with tears in her eyes, to oppose the journey. Here, said she, salvation may come, if not today, tomorrow. There we should both be lost utterly. But see, you almost abused me because I wanted to conquer the Starosta, though I knew of nothing. As I love Princess Griselda, it only came somehow of itself. But now would he regard my resistance were he not in love? What do you think? True, Anusha, true, responded Olenka. Do not trouble yourself, my most beautiful flower. We shall not stir a foot out of Taurogi. Besides, I shall annoy Sarkovich terribly. God grant you success. Why should I not have it? I shall succeed, first, because he cares for me, and second, as I think he cares for my property. It is easy for him to get angry with me. He can even wound me with his sabre. But then all would be lost. And it turned out that she was right. Sarkovich came to her joyful and confident, but she greeted him with disdainful mien. Is it possible, asked she, that you wish to flee to Prussia from dread of the Bileviches? Not before the Bileviches, answered he, frowning, not from fear, but I go there from prudence, so as to act against those robbers with fresh forces. Then a pleasant journey to you. How is that? Do you think that I will go without you, my dearest hope? Whoso is a coward may find hope in flight, not in me. 
Sakovich was pale from anger. He would have punished her, but seeing before whom he was standing, he restrained himself, softened his fierce face with a smile, and said, as if jesting, Oh, I shall not ask. I will seat you in a carriage and take you along. Will you? asked she. Then I see that I am held here in captivity against the will of the prince. Know then, sir, that if you do that, I shall not speak another word to you all my life, so help me the Lord God. For I was reared in Lubni, and I have the greatest contempt for cowards. Would that I had not fallen into such hands. Would that Pan Babinich had carried me off for good into Lithuania, for he was not afraid of any man. For God's sake, cried Sakovich, tell me at least why you are unwilling to go to Prussia. But Anusha feigned weeping and despair. Tartars, as it were, have taken me into captivity, though I was reared by Princess Griselda, and no one had a right to me. They seize me, imprison me, take me beyond the sea by force, will condemn me to exile. It is soon to be seen how they will tear me with pincers. Oh, my God, my God! Have the fear of that God on whom you are calling, cried the starosta. Who will tear you with pincers? Oh, save me, all ye saints, cried Anusha, sobbing. Sakovich knew not what to do. He was choking with rage. At times he thought that he would go mad, or that Anusha had gone mad. At last he threw himself at her feet and said that he would stay in Taurogi. Then she began to entreat him to go away if he was afraid, with which she brought him to final despair, so that, springing up and going out, he said, Well, we shall remain in Taurogi and whether I fear the Bileviches will soon be seen. And collecting that very day the remnant of Butsov's defeated troops and his own, he marched, but not to Prussia, only to Roshenye, against the Bileviches, who were encamped in the forests of Gerlachol. They did not expect an attack, for news of the intended withdrawal of the troops from Taurogi had been repeated in the neighbourhood for several days. The starosta struck them while off their guard, cut them to pieces, and trampled them. The sword-bearer himself, under whose leadership the party was, escaped from the defeat, but two Bileviches of another line fell, and with them a third part of the soldiers. The rest fled to the four points of the world. The starosta brought a number of tens of prisoners to Tarogi, and gave orders to slay every one, before Anusha could intercede in their defence. There was no further talk of leaving Taurogi, and the starosta had no need of doing so, for after this victory parties did not go beyond the Dubisha. Sakovich put on airs and boasted beyond measure, saying that if Lohenhaupt would send him a thousand good horse, he would rub out the rebellion in all Zhmudj. But Lohenhaupt was not in those parts then. Anusha gave a poor reception to this boasting. Oh, success against the sword-bearer was easy, said she. But if he before whom both you and the prince fled had been there, of a certainty you would have left me and fled to Prussia beyond the sea. These words pricked the starosta to the quick. 
First of all, do not imagine to yourself that Prussia is beyond the sea, for beyond the sea is Sweden. And second, before whom did the prince and I flee? Before Pan Babinich, answered she, courtesying with great ceremony. Would that I might meet him at a sword's length. Then you would surely lie a sword's depth in the ground, but do not call the wolf from the forest. Sakovich, in fact, did not call that wolf with sincerity, for though he was a man of incomparable daring, he felt a certain, almost superstitious, dread of Babinich, so ghastly were the memories that remained to him after the recent campaign. He did not know, besides, how soon he would hear that terrible name. But before that name rang through all Zhmuj, there came in time other news, for some the most joyful of joyful, but for Sarkovich most terrible, which all mouths repeated in three words throughout the whole commonwealth. Warsaw is taken! It seemed that the earth was opening under the feet of traitors, that the whole Swedish heaven was falling on their heads, together with all the deities which had shone in it hitherto like suns. Ears would not believe that the Chancellor Oxenstiern was in captivity, that in captivity were Erskine, Lohenhaupt, Wrangel, in captivity the great Wittenberg himself, who had stained the whole Commonwealth with blood, who had conquered one half of it before the coming of Karl Gustav, that the king, Jan Kazimir, was triumphing, and after the victory would pass judgment on the guilty. And this news flew as if on wings, roared like a bomb through the commonwealth, went through villages, for peasant repeated it to peasant, went through the fields, for the wheat rustled it, went through the forest, for pine tree told it to pine tree, the eagles screamed it in the air, and all living men still the more seized their weapons. In a moment, the defeat of Girlikol was forgotten around Taurogi. The recently terrible Sakovich grew small in everything, even in his own eyes. Parties began again to attack bodies of Swedes. The Bileviches, recovering after their last defeat, passed the Dubisha again, at the head of their own men and the remainder of the Lauda nobles. Sakovich knew not himself what to begin, whither to turn, from what side to look for salvation. For a long time he had no news from Prince Boguslav, and he racked his head in vain. Where was he? With what troops could he be? And at times a mortal terror seized him. Had not the prince too fallen into captivity? He called to mind the prince's saying that he would turn his tabor toward Warsaw, and that if they would make him commandant over the garrison in the capital, he would prefer to be there, for he could look more easily on every side. There were not wanting also people who asserted that the prince must have fallen into the hands of Jan Kazimir. If the prince were not in Warsaw, said they, why should our gracious lord the king exclude him alone from amnesty, which he extended in advance to all Poles in the garrison? He must be already in the power of the king, and since it is known that Prince Janusz's head was destined for the block, it is certain that Prince Boguslav's will fall. 
In consequence of these thoughts, Sarkovich came to the same conviction, and wrestled with despair, first because he loved the prince, second because he saw that if this powerful protector were dead, the wildest beast would more easily find a place to hide its head in the commonwealth than he, the right hand of the traitor. All that seemed left to him was to flee to Prussia without regard to Anusha's opposition and seek their bread, service. But what would happen, asked the starosta of himself more than once, if the elector, fearing the anger of Jan Kazimir, should give up all fugitives? There was no issue but to seek safety beyond the sea, in Sweden itself. Fortunately, after a week of this torment and doubt, a courier came from Prince Boguslav with a long autograph letter. Warsaw is taken from the Swedes, wrote the prince. My tabor and effects are lost. It is too late for me to recede, for the king's advisers are so envenomed against me that I was accepted from amnesty. Babinich harassed my troops at the very gates of Warsaw. Ketteling is in captivity. The king of Sweden, the elector, and I, with Steinbock and all forces, are marching to the capital, where there will be a general battle soon. Karl Gustav swears that he will win it, though the skill of Jan Kazimir in leading armies confounds him not a little. Who could have foreseen in that ex-Jesuit such a strategist? But I recognised him as early as Berestechko, for there everything was done with his head and Vishnevetsky's. We have hope in this, that the general militia, of which there are several tens of thousands with Jan Kazimir, will disperse to their homes, or that their first ardour will cool, and they will not fight as at first. God grant some panic in that rabble, then Karl Gustav can give them a general defeat, though what will come later is unknown, and the generals themselves tell one another in secret that the rebellion is a hydra on which new heads are growing every moment. First of all, Warsaw must be taken a second time. When I heard this from the mouth of Karl, I asked, What next? He said nothing. Here our strength is crumbling, theirs is increasing. We have nothing with which to begin a new war. And courage is not the same. No Poles will join the Swedes as at first. My uncle, the elector, is silent as usual. But I see well that if we lose a battle, he will begin tomorrow to beat the Swedes, so as to buy himself into Jan Kazimir's favour. It is bitter to bow down, but we must. God grant that I be accepted and come out whole without losing my property. I trust only in God, but it is hard to escape fear, and we must foresee evil. Therefore, what property you can sell or mortgage for ready money, sell and mortgage. Even enter into relations with confederates in secret. Go yourself with the whole Tabor to Birji, as from there to Kurland is nearer. I should advise you to go to Prussia, but soon it will not be safe from fire and sword in Prussia, for immediately after the taking of Warsaw, Babinich was ordered to march through Prussia to Lithuania, to excite the rebellion and burn and slay on the road.
and you know that he will carry out that order. We tried to catch him at the Bug, and Steinbock himself sent a considerable force against him, of which not one man returned to give news of the disaster. Do not try to measure yourself with Babinich, for you will not be able, but hasten to Birji. The fever has left me entirely. Here there are high and dry plains, not such swamps as in Zhmuj. I commit you to God, etc. The starosta was as much grieved at the news as he was rejoiced that the prince was alive and in health, for if the prince foresaw that the winning of a general battle could not much better the shattered fortune of Sweden, what could be hoped for in future? Perhaps the prince might save himself from ruin under the robe of the crafty elector, and he, Sakovich, under the prince. But what could be done in the meanwhile? Go to Prussia? Pan Sakovich did not need the advice of the prince to restrain him from meeting Babinich. Power and desire to do that were both lacking. Birji remained, but too late for that also. On the road was a Bilevich party, then a second party, nobles, peasants, people of the prince, and God knows what others, who at a mere report would assemble and sweep him away as a whirlwind sweeps withered leaves. And even if they did not assemble, even if he could anticipate them by a swift and bold march, it would be needful to fight on the road with others. At every village, at every swamp, in every field and forest, a new battle. What forces should he have to take even thirty horses to Birji? Was he to remain in Tarogi? That was bad, for meanwhile the terrible Babinich would come at the head of a powerful Tartar legion. All the parties would fly to him. They would cover Taurogi as with a flood, and wreak a vengeance such as man had not heard of till that day. For the first time in his life, the hitherto insolent Starosta felt that he lacked counsel in his head, strength in undertaking, and decision in danger. And the next day, he summoned to counsel Butsov, Braun, and some of the most important officers. It was decided to remain in Taurogi and await tidings from Warsaw. But Braun, from that council, went straight to another, to one with Anusha. Long, long did they deliberate together. At last Braun came out with face greatly moved, but Anusha rushed like a storm to Olenka. Olenka, the time has come, cried she on the threshold. We must flee. When? asked the valiant girl, growing a little pale, but rising at once in sign of immediate readiness. Tomorrow, tomorrow. Braun has the command, and Sakovich will sleep in the town, for Pan Jeshuk has invited him to a banquet. Pan Jeshuk was long ago prepared, and he will put something in Sakovich's wine. Braun says that he will go himself and take fifty horse. Oh, Olenka, how happy I am, how happy! Here Anusha threw herself on Panana Bilevich's neck, and began to press her with such an outburst of joy that she asked, what is the matter, Anusha? You might have brought Braun to this long ago. I might, I might. I have told you nothing yet. Oh, my God, my God, have you heard of nothing? Pan Babinich is marching hither. 
Sakovich and all of them are dying of fear. Pan Babinich is marching, burning and slaying. He has destroyed one party, has beaten Steinbock himself, and is advancing with forced marches so as to hurry. And to whom can he hurry hither? Tell me, am I not a fool? Here tears glistened in Anusha's eyes. Olenka placed her hands together as if in prayer, and raising her eyes said, To whomsoever he is hastening, may God straighten his paths, bless him and guard him. End of chapter 48 Recording by David Granville Young